Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the podcast editor of The War Room. We're glad that you could join us today for our discussion. Numerous studies, reinforced by the lived experience of students and teachers, have emphasized the positive relationship between classroom diversity and learning. However one chooses to define or measure diversity, the healthy friction provided by different backgrounds and experiences lends both light and heat to classroom interactions and provides value for all concerned. Nevertheless, differences remain in trying to determine not only how much of what sort of diversity makes the most difference, but also the best strategies for achieving those desired levels. As the Army War College and other professional military education institutions, or PMEs, attempt to live up to their responsibility to prepare future strategic leaders for an increasingly complex world, these questions have taken on increasing significance. Our guests today are two scholars deeply immersed in the research on the value of diversity in both students and faculty, and especially in the challenges of developing processes to encourage diversity in PME. Dr. Megan Hennessy is Professor of Educational Methodology at the U.S. Army War College, and Dr. Brandy Jenner is a postdoctoral fellow in Educational Methodology at the U.S. Army War College. We are delighted to have both of them with us today to discuss their work and its implications for the future on a better peace. Welcome, Dr. Hennessy, Dr. Jenner. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be here with you. So what does research tell us about the value of diversity in educational settings? So I think to answer that, first, I want to point out that our team, the educational methodology team at the War College, is in an interesting spot and has some unique opportunities. So there aren't too many PME institutions that have sort of a cell of educational researchers, um, which is what our team essentially is. And so it's really been our goal to bring a level of empirical rigor and validity to decisions that are made in our institution Um, And likewise, amongst our community of PME, um, in order to really ground those decisions in evidence and make sure that we're linking to things that we know to be true, we're not reinventing the wheel, we're not making decisions based just on anecdotal evidence. Um, so, So to that, we started looking at this issue of diversity specifically as it related to the student slate or how we assign students to seminars. Um, Back in the summer of 2018, And we wanted to know what does this decision, how students are put into seminars, what is the relationship of that decision to students' ability to attain learning outcomes, and just how they experience the War College in general. Um, So that kind of kicked off our search for knowledge on this topic. Uh, We we know that diverse teams have been proven to make more accurate, detailed, and fact-based decisions, as well as to be aware of their own biases. So that is definitely something we want from our senior leaders. And that specifically, teams that include women are more likely to introduce radical new innovations. So we're told that from the scholarship. Diaz Garcia, Gonzalez Moreno, Cez Martinez. Um, There's a lot of, of 
organizational psychology findings around this issue. So we had a good place to start, but nothing specific to PME. Mm-hmm. And then Brandy came in mm-hmm. as our postdoc. Well, and I can add sort of the the particular education and higher education, um, you know, background to that. So in terms of classroom dynamics and that extant body of literature, it really suggests that we have to consider the number of students of color and female students in a classroom as just as important to their overall inclusion, right? So having the same isn't, having one isn't the same as having two or three Mm -hmm. students with these diverse perspectives. So while there are some benefits to, you know, white male students of being in a classroom with any number of diverse students uh, themselves, diverse students experience effects in a different way. Mm-hmm. So one diverse one student with a vector of diversity might experience something that we call tokenism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, sort of a harmful thing where the student is sort of asked to speak on behalf of a group and they sort of feel these pressures. Uh, they may withdraw from conversation, right? It's not the kinds of outcomes that we're looking for. Um, and a similar phenomenon exists when you have two students with these diverse perspectives, either women, students of color, along any axis, neuro typicality, right, anything. And so you experience something really similar, which is that these students are still asked to speak on behalf of the group. They may be asked to confirm uh, what each other says, but they also experience the harmful consequences of potential social withdrawal, added stress um, of being sort of seen as the exemplar stereotype. Is it fair to say that uh, diversity works best when uh, it's not a matter of the individuals who are considered diverse are, uh, it, it's better when they are not constantly being asked to comment on upon the fact that yes. they are diverse, yeah. right? Yeah, that's it's exactly better, right. It's better to have the conversation and just to believe that everybody's bringing something different to the conversation. Right, to understand that every voice will bring something a little bit mm-hmm. different and that particular voices have particular things to add. Mm-hmm. And to that end, something that we term critical mass is really helpful. So if you have a larger number of students who come from diverse experience backgrounds, diverse demographic backgrounds, et cetera, then... They don't feel internally that same pressure to be asked to speak for the group. They don't experience these sort of conversational penalties, um, and they generally feel freer to express opinions that either converge or diverge with what is considered sort of what people expect them to say. Right. I A question, this is moving into something very practical, but we can go back to the the. Uh, more abstract questions in a second, but what what I wonder about is is at the at the War College, right? It's institution like the War College, when you have uh, a, a relatively small group of people who would constitute mm. diversity in the classroom, is it better to spread out those folks across every possible group, or would it be better to create a few groups that had the critical mass, even if that meant that then there would be some groups that simply don't have much diversity at all? Right. And that's that's sort of the exact question that we were we were wrestling mm-hmm. with um, when I've been working on this climate study, when we've been looking to um, sort of inform decision makers about this topic. Um, and so there are camps that say within the literature that it's important to spread diversity around. Typically, the reasons that people say this is so that people's exposure to diversity, and in this way, we're often talking about, you know, white male traditional sorts of students, Mm -hmm. exposure to diverse students as maximized. That's certainly one way to put it. But I think that that's thinking of students with diverse demographic vectors, diverse identities 
it's thinking of these students as instrumental to the education yes. of other students. Yes, right. as a socializing force. Right. Which right. is not what we want. Right. right. So we're looking... They, they should be allowed to be students like all the other students are Exactly students. right. Exactly, exactly. So we're looking to make their educational experiences as good as they can be as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we, we often run afoul of tokenism and why that's why that's so harmful. Because not only does it impact the diverse students' experience of education, but it causes them to potentially withdraw, also impacting other their students experience and exposure to whatever vector of diversity is being sort of desired. Uh, although th- this is a very serious topic, but one joke that comes to mind about this that I always <laughs> think about is when in the, in the film, the blues brothers, when the mm, blues yeah. brothers show up at Bob's country bunker and they ask the hostess what, um, what music they like to hear. And she says, we like all kinds country and Western. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and I was thinking about this is at the war college for a long time, the army war college, right? Diversity is we have, we have army and Navy people here, or we, have, or maybe we have, we have uh, uniformed active duty military and reserve, or, or we have, or we have active, we have military and civilian. Um, I guess the, the idea of what kinds of diversity, mm-hmm. um, the DOD has, has, uh, pursued privileged uh, uh, in the past and what whether whether efforts to build other other earlier sorts of diversity for mm-hmm. example um, mm-hmm. whether they whether those same uh, whether there are procedures that can then be applied to other diversities as well so like when the, the army goes looking for navy people to be at the war college is that also something that can be done to encourage greater greater racial diversity greater gender diversity on campus yeah so diversity is mentioned a couple times Mm -hmm. in our guiding documents or things that we look to for guidance as we move forward and structuring our seminars and the way we do business and do education here on the war college website we state that diversity of experience Mm -hmm. is a priority and related to that the regulation for our military faculty um, it's an in-house regulation 600 tac 10 says that we're seeking faculty to provide value to the institution via leadership, teaching of relevant topics, practitioner experience, and professional diversity. Mm-hmm. Demographic diversity does not come in into that discussion. There's also a question of who we're recruiting for the faculty in terms of their experience having been at the War College, right. not just a senior service college, but the Army War College. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dissertation studied the lived faculty development experience of active duty military instructors. And one of the participants noted in an interview that the practice of hiring War College graduates as faculty may be quietly reinforced even though we all acknowledge that we want diversity of thought from diverse backgrounds. So I think there's many, as Brandy says, different vectors of diversity, some that we're considering and some that we really have not even begun to scratch the surface. And, Mm -hmm. and since you, since you specifically were talking about faculty there, Megan, right, is that it's, it's not just a matter of, of student diversity, right? And uh, as a, as a brand new member of the faculty at the U.S. Army Welcome. War College myself, thank you. Um, I went through, for the record, I went through new faculty development that was led by Brandy and Megan. So, right, so if, if anything that I've done well so far, it's it's their fault. Thanks, Rob. Um, you bet. And uh, but but this idea of uh, for an institution, um, in some ways, right, getting a more diverse student body is easier than getting a more diverse faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine, just because you there are more students you're going to bring in, so therefore you can cast that wider net. But for f- every faculty search. Is is an individual process, mm-hmm. and um, I wonder uh, for the uh, you know that we're not we're not making absolute black and white decisions here. But I wonder um, should the uh, 
is it a matter of you do students first and then faculty, faculty first and then students? Do you try to do them both at the same time? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does one prioritize the, the search for diversity? Right, this is a chicken and the egg question. Indeed. And Indeed. I think they do go hand in hand. But as a faculty developer, there I would <laughs> say that you have to target the faculty first. Mm-hmm. And maybe Brandy will disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at that... It's good. We have diverse opinions here. Yes, it is. <laughs> The students want to see themselves Mm -hmm. in the faculty cadre, Mm -hmm. and they notice who is a faculty member and what those faculty members look like, their professional backgrounds, um, their race, their age, all manners of things. Mm -hmm. And when they don't see themselves reflected in the faculty, that definitely influences their decision to perhaps come back as a faculty member. Um, They know that there would be some element of isolation if they were to come back. Um, And we know this from Brandy's ongoing work with the climate survey and Mm -hmm. from my findings as well, that this is something that's repeatedly raised. And we have had female faculty members here also who don't see themselves reflected in the administration at the mm-hmm. War College. And I don't think this is a, a problem only at the War College here, at the Army War College. I think other institutions have this challenge as well. But um, one of my dissertation participants voiced that she had put in an application for an administrator role and decided to withdraw because she did not see room for her hmm. in the administration. See, mm-hmm. and, and I guess that is the... the uh, that's not... That's not de facto or de jure discrimination, but it is a kind of uh, hidden discrimination if people just feel like, why bother? Um, They're never going to pick me. Mm -hmm. Brandy, do you have an opinion on this chicken or egg question? You know, I I, I do agree that it's a chicken or egg question. I think that it's true that student bodies do sort of diversify more naturally. You know, they're younger. The mechanisms to become a student are lesser than those Mm -hmm. to become a faculty member, right? There's a lot, a few more hoops you need to jump through uh, to become a faculty member. And that's why it's so important to be really intentional about recruiting a diverse faculty. because diverse students need to see themselves represented, as Megan said, representation is really vital, but diverse faculty members or faculty members with different identity vectors, right, or vectors of diversity um, are really important in classroom discussion, not only in bringing their own perspectives, but in drawing out particular perspectives in the classroom, knowing when there might be a gap in the discussion based on their own lived experience, and then helping to draw that out and bring that in, you know, irrespective of the demographics of the students, right, Mm -hmm. that we can bring that in. Um, In addition, it's really important for future preparation. So the military diversifies, obviously, and society diversifies. And I think that society diversifies greater society a little bit faster maybe than the military um and so especially a volunteer military especially a volunteer military right exactly and so that's part of why you need to bring these other voices in who might not necessarily come up through the ranks in the same way or that it might take a little bit longer um Mm. for these individuals to be reflected in positions of authority if we don't do something about it that is really systematic and actually through some of my research I found some interesting pieces that other colleges and universities typically civilian are doing to really advance um and really support searches for a diverse faculty. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking at institutions like Harvard, Yale, Columbia, UC Berkeley, um, and so on. And they have 
now, this is sort of a newish phenomenon, have explicit instructions to search committees about how to run successful searches that attract diverse candidates and combat implicit biases of the search committee. And so some examples of these, these, you know, policies are to create an actual diverse search committee as well, um, to educate them on what their implicit biases may be, to use family-friendly or work-life balance-friendly information and language in job ads. Maybe and, and scheduling of visits to campus. Too, and I'm scheduling sure, right? of yes, visits absolutely. to campus. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. And to create multiple candidate rankings based on different criteria. So mm-hmm. to imagine a number of different criteria, rank candidates along those, and then aggregate them instead of to say, ah, well, he's a superstar. So, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be this person. Right. And some of these things are not difficult or even time consuming to do. Mm-hmm. So implicit bias training, for instance, it can be something as quick as just having a very short conversation as you meet together for the first time as a search committee and saying, please be mindful of Mm -hmm. your implicit biases as we conduct the search. Mm -hmm. We know from studies and research that even just that one sentence actually improves outcomes. Just because Mm -hmm. it it reminds people they need to think about this. Yes, exactly. And uh, how, this is a tough question too, is, is how should we how should an institution like the War College or any institution, um, how often should it be taking its temperature on diversity, right? Mm. Is it, it, since you know, we, we enroll students once a year, um, you do faculty searches at, uh, at intervals. Mm-hmm. Um, how should, how, what kind of time horizon should institutions be adopting to reach the levels of diversity they would like to reach? I think it should be daily and iterative. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so yeah. I've heard uh, Dr. Jackie Witt talk about this. Uh-huh. Sometimes she'll go into meetings and she will do a silent count of who is in the room mm-hmm. or a silent account mm-hmm. of who is in the room. And I'm not sure everyone is doing that or would mm-hmm. even it would mm-hmm. even occur to some people who are not in the minority on any one of these many diversity right. uh, vectors. Yeah, but, I think I think that yearly is an obvious place mm-hmm. to take the temperature and mm-hmm. to do that. But I think I think it's right. I think that it's something that you should infuse every time. Certainly, you start a new search, mm-hmm. and for faculty who are at the War College, every time they walk into the classroom, they can think about that. They can do things like count to themselves. You know, how often am I calling on an international student, a student of color, a female student? Um, regarding or sort of related to their white counterparts or their male counterparts, right? Mm -hmm. So we can sort of take that temperature ourselves every day and sort of see where we're at and see if there is improvement that could be made, right? Every day is a new opportunity to make more improvement on these topics. Very good. Well, and you mentioned the International Fellows, and I'm Mm -hmm. curious about how, uh, what is our sense of the research that's been done on how uh, International Fellows have have changed the diversity uh, or the overall sort of uh, makeup of the student body at the War College. Yeah, so international fellows are a really interesting case. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a large number of them, which I think is mm-hmm. incredibly value in terms of what they do to improve diversity of thought, to bring in perspectives from outside the U.S., to bring in regional perspective, to bring in different religious perspective, right? To bring in a, a host of new perspectives, but. What's interesting is that they don't necessarily improve demographic diversity as mm-hmm. we typically think of it. And, and let me tell you more sure. about that. So, for example, just because a black student has dark skin, right, doesn't mean that they represent a minority demographic. 
For example, a black student from Kenya is still probably in the majority demographic in that person's country rather than the minority. And so far, right, maybe unlikely to represent the same perspectives as a person of color from the U.S., right? It's not about melanin content of the students in our classroom, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's a, that is a, that's a very good observation. I was thinking about that and that from from some from some countries, right, the the mm-hmm. officers who are who are becoming international fellows, right, not only are they not in the minority at home, they're, right. they're actually, they may actually come from privileged elements of yes. society. So they're, yeah, so more they're, typically. The, so it's a different, yes, they may bring diverse perspectives, but not diverse in the ways that, that we think about with, with American students, yeah. right. students from CONUS. And they certainly don't, they certainly don't substitute for U.S. students of color who mm-hmm. have the experience of being an underrepresented voice in our society, mm-hmm. right? That adds another perspective as well. Right. Well, and and um, thinking about that, and thinking about what you've already talked about, right? The metaphor that you that has to be mentioned in every discussion of diversity, and I'm going to commit this crime by mentioning it here too. <laughs> and that's the pipeline problem, oh, right? Gosh. Right. <laughs> so we have to we have to bring it up because I was thinking that with with international fellows, because we're talking about uh, military establishments that are many of them are are even further. You know, on, in a in a different place on having women as officers than the United States, so mm-hmm. therefore the chances that you're going to get a a woman as an international fellow from many of these places is is lower mm-hmm. than for the United States. But even within the United States, and this I'm thinking about this with faculty choices as well as with students, mm-hmm. is um, the the concept of the the pipeline, whether it's leaky or narrow or however many <laughs> other metaphors you want to torture. Um, it may explain things, but doesn't excuse things, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, if we take it as as granted that you know um, that officers of a certain age, right, reflect the the circumstances by which they became officers, which might be periods when there were fewer women. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, should we simply you know we can't simply sit back and hope for time to take care of all of our problems, yeah. um, but recognizing that there are problems with the pipelines is what can be done to overcome that rather than just simply to sit back and say, what are you going to do? Pipeline leaks. Right. Mm -hmm. The Daily Princetonian is actually taking Uh an aggressive stance (laughs) on this and arguing that this is an easy way out to Mm -hmm. blame the pipeline Mm -hmm. and it's an excuse. And I think that we should take that same attitude. Mm -hmm. There are ways to supplement our faculty cadre and our student cadre Um, with the students from experiences and backgrounds that we seek. Mm -hmm. It may look a little different than what we're doing now. Perhaps Mm -hmm. we focus more on recruiting senior civilians Mm -hmm. who have the same sort of experiences that we're looking for. Um, It doesn't have to be a reliance on military students or military faculty. That would be one sort of easier way. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. And, well, and in terms of in terms of PME faculty, so we're hovering, depending on the institution, around five to nine percent of the faculty in PME are women. Um, it's it's fairly small, right? It's, I, would, it's, I don't think I would say that 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 would that would count as fairly small. <laughs> fairly yeah. small. I don't think we're even <laughs> taking advantage of the pipeline that we have, and mm-hmm. I think that's even more true of students. So I, I ran mm-hmm. some numbers oh, as good. you know a data person, as I as I always will. <laughs> um, so in terms of our students this year, women represent less than ten percent of the overall student body, mm-hmm. um, and U.S. students of color represent about thirteen percent of the okay. overall student body. So data suggests that among current Army officers, right, not the total makeup, just officers, individuals of color represent about 27% and women are about 18%. So it's clear that there's room even within the current, you know, leaky pipeline to improve what, what we've got. That sounds like, it sounds like the uh, overall, it's about twice as, twice as large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Both That's of the those takeaway. populations. 
fascinating. The 10% is important to focus on as mm-hmm. well. Um, Joan Johnson Fries has written about this as 10% is the tipping point yep. for adoption of ideas. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's assuming that those 10% all have the same idea that they're advocating for, well, yes. which we should not assume. Right. Well, and so <laughs> Very true. in terms of bang for a buck, if faculty or students are hovering around 9% or, or something, 8%, that even just making a few additional phone calls, a few additional personal contacts to get those numbers sort of above this threshold of critical mass could pay really huge dividends in terms of these innovative ideas that diverse perspectives bring. And I don't think you should do that and disregard the climate of Of what the current faculty are experiencing Mm -hmm. because we all talk to each other and some folks might not be able to recommend a certain PME institution in good faith knowing what their current experience has been like. Mm -hmm. And so it's a a multi-front approach Right. It's not just recruiting. Right, mm-hmm. Recru- re- retention is a, is a significant issue, and Absolutely. and how people feel um, as they are there. I'm I'm struck by the thought mm-hmm. that uh, in order to to push ahead with attempts at, at diversity, that in a sense we have to go back to the future or or towards <laughs> the past, and says we have to we have to go back to the notions of. Uh, faculty and institutions using their networks mm. to identify candidates that mm-hmm. you don't just you don't just put out an ad and sit back and fold your arms and wait for the applicants to show up mm-hmm. and uh, that means that the student body and the faculty have to be that the institutions have to be comfortable with the idea that the student body and the faculty is curated, right? Yes. That, that it is not, you know, they, they don't want to fall back on, on on notions of somehow it's natural or inevitable and therefore, you know, what are you going to do, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's always been curated and we just need to be, we need to be serious and conscious about the curation that we're doing. Right, and that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so we just saw a study out of Canada together with um, UK forces about incentivization and motivation to take instructor and trainer roles or positions. And the number one motivator is desire to pass on knowledge and encourage students to learn. Mm -hmm. And so why is it a bad thing to be targeting people that we know want to come here? It's not at all. That doesn't sound like a terrible idea. No. (laughs) And it's it's important to think about our own historical mindedness, if Mm -hmm. you will, in this. So institutions... Both data and historical mindedness. You're you're hitting them all, Brandy. This is great. Go right ahead. I'm bringing it all in. Thanks, Ron. Um, (laughs) But in terms of that, it's important to recognize that historically, institutions were also always curated. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. In terms of sort of the old boys network, right? In terms of that type of networking. So they continue to to be curated. It's not new that Mm -hmm. they are being curated in this way. What's new is that now other networks are being included in the curation of the student body and in terms of the faculty body as well. Right. And and once again, it's we we we, a historical awareness that there is that (laughs) you have to make decisions, right? That all that everything is decisions. That the idea because this this is where uh, there are certain, let's say, myths of myths of the meritocracy, myths right. of sort of the you know the objectivity of certain data, which can let people off the hook about the choices that they're making every day. That's exactly right. And so, what what programs are underway? You mentioned the um, uh, you mentioned the climate study, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is an ongoing study, I guess, here yeah. at the War College. Um, in what ways are our programs looking at things at the War College? How are they plugged into programs? 
similar or that are underway at other PMEs? Um, and uh, is there is there any larger dialogue going on mm. about these questions? There is. I don't know about diversity specifically, but mm-hmm. we're starting up a group, the PME Faculty Consortium, and this came from <laughs> Lauren McKenzie out of Marine Corps University. And together, I think, going back to my comment before we started or as we started, using the scholarship, using evidence to make these decisions is key. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brandy has definitely applied that to her ongoing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the biggest sort of ongoing pieces of my postdoc sort of beside the everyday um, has really been this climate study and it's been to sort of investigate what's going on in the classroom and in the faculty body in terms of what people see as the climate so I did some focus groups last year um, that's part of what led to the change in slating procedures so that now we do race and gender blind slating procedures for our students into their home seminars and so I'm following it up sort of this fall with a sense of belonging survey that will be administered to both faculty and then also hopefully students Mm -hmm. to sort of get at um, if there are groups of faculty that feel or will self-identify as, you know, feeling like they don't belong or being made to feel like they don't belong or this feeling of having an ill fit. We want to be able to identify what those groups may be. And I'm thinking along a number of lines, right? Perhaps it's civilian students, right? There are a lot of different a lot of different stakeholders that might be involved, but we'd like to target some more resources mm-hmm. to, you know, assisting these faculty with retention, these students with success, um, sort of based on the results of this survey. Well, and I am curious how how different, I mean, you know, we all, we all have our opinions about you know, the superiority of the U.S. Army War College to other PME <laughs> institutions, which we could, I hope our audience doesn't mind us saying that. But I am curious, um, they're, they're, uh, uh, as far as size, mm. as far as uh, as far as trends, you know, faculty turnover, um, student the student body, the number of international fellows, um, uh, are the are the various PME institutions are they comparable, uh, or are there level are there areas in which they are more it's, it's easier to compare them to each other than others? I would imagine it's just a matter of scale. A matter of scale, yeah, mm-hmm. Same. makes sense to me. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, so where do we go from here with, uh, you know, so we, we have a sense of where things are. We have a sense of what's going on. What is the, what is the sense in, in the years to come with the programs that either you're getting started now um, or that you're hoping to, be, to make the War College a part of in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, so we already talked about some aggressive recruitment of faculty, mm-hmm. but some other things that we're considering. So diversity beyond demographic diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Within educational methodology here at the Army War College, we are looking at universal design for learning standards. So that is based on the assumption that there is no standard student. You're either Mm -hmm. neurotypically or in other ways. Um, And that's just good practice that Mm -hmm. I think we have taken for granted and have not done in the past. So we have an opportunity to grow there. I would really like to see respect for diversity of family choices. there's a monstrous demand for child care for PME mm-hmm. faculty. There's no federal policy for paid parental leave for civilians. Uh, civilian faculty, I know from experience, must use their own personal accrued annual or sick leave. Mm-hmm. And there's implications for their scholarship agendas as mm-hmm. part of this. Mm-hmm. And so it's all obviously up to each one of us how we choose to use our leave. Um, but there are different opportunities afforded from being forced to use your leave versus choosing it to use it maybe for scholarship or some other thing. 
And then the other thing I'd really like for us to focus on, and I know we will in several working groups and committees here in the War College, um, the Army War College, is the appropriate use of student evaluations of teaching. Ah. Mm -hmm. We know empirically that it is a bad idea to use this as a sole data point when it comes to teacher performance evaluation. Um, it only hits on level one of the Kirkpatrick evaluation scale. <laughs> and for those who aren't <laughs> assessment nerds, that basically means that if you're surveying students at the end of a course, you are only gauging their reaction to a learning event. Right. You are not gauging a change in behavior or even actual learning that has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there are problems with this and gender bias, and there's no reason to rely on it as a sole point of data. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, there are huge numbers of bias in, in student evaluations. It's actually been a big topic at a couple of conferences I've been to. I can imagine. Uh, recently, the American Sociological Association last summer um, issued a statement um, about that, and the American Educational Research Association has had a statement, I think, I want to say for, you know, five years or so mm -hmm. um, related to that. But for me, it does it does sort of come back to implicit biases as well. And so one of the things that we're planning in terms of faculty development is to roll out a faculty development on implicit biases. Mm -hmm. um, so and this is really sort of a best practice in both teaching and learning. Um, no one wants to think that they have implicit biases. Right. That's why the biases are called implicit, right? <laughs> um, they're not overt if, if biases. You, if you, if you you own them, right. they're very different, right? Right, then, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. And some people do own them. <laughs> right, some people do, right. They, and that's 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 a whole different thing. Um, so recognizing implicit biases really helps us correct them. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives us the opportunity, for example, in searches for faculty, if we understand that implicit biases operate, we can take steps to use uh, measures, uh, really sort of concrete pieces to counteract that. If we recognize that we have implicit biases in grading, we could do, you know, name blind grading, where we don't look at the names of students before we grade papers. That's a similar best practice. Um, this really helps, you know, students of color, students who may be disabled or neuroatypical, um, women students, right? The whole variety. Civilian students, if you think, if the prompt is one, you know, sort of for or against a military action or something about just war, right? Maybe you have reason to think that civilians and, you know, your army students might react differently. It would be a good idea to grade sort of blind in terms of that. Sure, and then certainly. see just what the arguments are and really work at that level instead of sort of ha coming in with this bias Oh, you know, I think Ron's going to think a particular way about this issue. Of course he will. I get, I get, <laughs> of course he will. I, I get that all the time. Well, I, I, and so that is something you're planning on doing maybe in, in the coming year, the, the current academic year? It or? should be spring 2020. Oh, wonderful. Yep. Okay. Well, um, with that look to the future, what we're going to do, I want to thank Dr. Brandy Jenner, who just spoke to you, and Dr. Megan Hennessy, who also spoke to you in this discussion, for joining us today. And I want to thank all of you for joining us, listening to uh, A Better Peace. I hope that you enjoyed uh, and, and found our discussion uh, informative. And we look forward to hearing your comments about this. Tell us what you think. Send us, uh, send us your comments through our website. But until next time on A Better Peace, for The War Room, I'm Ron Granary. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. 
Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.